So I'm going to be speaking to you from John 20, uh, verses 1 to 18. Um, I'm just going to read that to you now. It should appear on the screen. Great, because I don't have it in front of me. Um, And it says, Early on, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed, but they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are here with us. I pray that as I speak this evening, you would take my words and you would multiply them that each and every person here would hear from you and that they would take something away that helps them to grow deeper and more in love with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me take you back, um, oh gosh, almost four years now to the heady days before the pandemic. June 25th, 2018, was the day that I got married to my wife, Jess. We got married in the Cotswolds, um, and Jess had planned everything with precision. She has great attention to detail, and it was set to be an amazing day. Our movements were planned to the minute. She'd written out all the timings, given everyone a sheet of paper with the timings on. Everyone had their jobs. Everyone knew what their jobs were meant to be. And it was all set out. And the boys even had time to go and get some drinks and lunch, which was great. And so much was so well planned. But there were two elements that despite her best efforts, Jess could not control. Number one was the weather. Number two was me. 
As I'm sure that most people do when planning an outdoor event, if you're having a barbecue or something like that, um, Jess was checking the weather religiously. She's been doing the same. She's actually gone away on holiday this week, but um, she has been checking the weather every day to make sure that it's going to be hot and sunny for her holiday. She was doing the same for our wedding. She would check it every single day on the phone. She'd get really distressed when it was going to rain. Um, and then the next day, it was going to be sunny, so that was great. And then the day after, it said it was going to rain again. But she was checking it until the day finally arrived, and she could see no clouds in the sky, and the sun was shining. I wasn't checking the weather. I was a lot more relaxed. I... Uh, probably should have been a little bit more diligent in what I was meant to be doing. I had one important job in particular. Um, and on one particular day, I was due to drive from Surrey to the Cotswolds. I was to take a box of stuff for, to our wedding decorator. And then on the way back, I was meant to pick up a helium canister to blow up all our balloons probably should have made a list. It's only two things, but I probably should have made a list of my jobs. And then I'd have been able to take a second look at my list and realize that I hadn't done something. I didn't realize until the last minute that I had forgotten to pick up the helium canister from the shop in Surrey. It was the night before the wedding that I realized this. Thankfully, I did remember. I was able to call some friends who were back, back home in London. The shop still had the helium canister. They were able to pick it up, and we had the balloons. And as we look at our passage this evening, I'm left wondering, what if Mary hadn't taken a second look inside the tomb? We find ourselves at a fairly dark moment for the disciples. They'd, uh, they'd been following Jesus for three years. They'd been traipsing around the countryside with him. They believed that he was their hope, that he was going to liberate them from the Romans, that Israel was going to be a great nation again. And now he was dead. They'd buried him, and he was dead. Could you imagine this? Could you imagine how they were feeling? Maybe when you look around at the world, you feel a sense of hopelessness. There's wars, there's political division, we've got the climate crisis. Maybe you look around and you feel like things are all going wrong, that you feel like there's darkness around. Well, this evening I want to encourage you to take a second look. We read that Mary headed to the tomb. We're not told what she was going there to do. In some of the other Gospels, they say that she was uh, going with the other women to prepare the body, um, to anoint the body with um, oils and spices, as was the custom. But we, we don't know here what Mary was going to do. Maybe she was going to mourn. Maybe uh, she was going to pay her respects to this man that she'd known. But all we do know is that when Mary arrived at the tomb, it wasn't as she expected. On first look, the stone had been rolled away. The body was gone. And to Mary, it seemed obvious what had happened. She leaps to the obvious conclusion 
that someone has gone in and taken Jesus' lifeless body. She didn't know who had taken it, where they had taken him, but that is what she saw. And how many times have we looked at situations and thought that the answer was obvious? How many times have we not understood what God might be trying to say to us? How many times have we gone through something and then only years later, as we look back, realized what God has done through it? How many times have we looked at something once when we needed to take a second look? What I love about the Bible is that it's full of people who don't get it right. It gives me hope. Uh, It gives me hope because God doesn't choose people based on uh, what they do and how they act. And actually, when you think of most of the heroes in the Bible, you get a list of people who are kind of constantly getting it wrong. If you go to the Old Testament, you've got Abraham, who's considered one of the fathers of the Jewish and Christian faiths. He's promised offspring and blessings that will outnumber the stars, outnumber the grains of sand. He twice tried to pass off his wife as his sister so that he wouldn't get into trouble. He got impatient with God and decided that it would be better to have a a child by his slave, Hagar, than wait for God's promise through his wife, Sarah. We've got David, who uh, we kind of think of as this great king, this great worship leader. He committed adultery and had the husband killed, and then he lied about it to a prophet. We've got Peter, who's mentioned in this passage, who told Jesus that he wasn't going to let him die. Cut off one of the ears of the guards sent to arrest Jesus and then went on to deny Jesus three times. But God. Which is an incredible phrase because it lets me know that no matter how dark it seems, no matter how hopeless the situation is, how much I might have messed up, but God. The Bible lets me know that God loves me, God loves you, God loves us, no matter what we do, how much we mess up, and that he can use us no matter how useless we feel. For me, that's how I like to read the Bible. I like to read it as a a love story between God, humanity, and creation. It's a story of regular people who, with the power and support of God, can do extraordinary, world-changing things. It's the story of, but God. And that phrase gives me hope when there is no hope. And we can all do with some hope in dark times. And I'm not talking about false hope. I am great at false hope. Um, When Jess comes to me, uh, actually when most people come to me and uh, present to me a situation that they're going through, uh, I'm really good at saying, everything's going to be fine. It'll all work out. It'll be okay. It's kind of like the the Bob Marley song. Don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right. It's my instant response. But unlike the Bob Marley song, we don't have three little birds talking to us on our doorstep. 
But we can smile with the rising sun. We can smile because we believe in the risen sun. We can smile because we have a hope that is greater and surer than the fact that the sun will rise every morning. Sometimes we might find it hard to see the sun through the clouds. Today, um, it's been a bit of a weird day. It's been really sunny at points, and then the clouds have come, and then it's, they've gone away again. Sometimes it's hard to feel the warmth of the sun on your skin. But you still know that it's there. You still know it's there. It's providing light. It's providing warmth. And we're told that the hope that we have in Jesus is greater than the rising sun. So we return to Mary. She must have felt like the sun wasn't shining. Not only had Jesus, one of her closest friends, this guy that she's been following around for three years, been killed, but now there was nowhere to direct her grief. There was an empty tomb. She didn't know where the body was. So she went to the disciples and brought two of them back with her to prove that this was the case, to prove that she was telling the truth. And you may have heard this before, but back in those days, women weren't reliable witnesses. Their testimony would not have been heard in a court of law. Sorry, ladies. But in all of the Gospels, every single Gospel... Women were the first to see and the first to report that Jesus had risen. I was uh, reading some books around this passage um, and something that I I read, a small small snippet that I, I really enjoyed, was the fact that it's laid out so plainly that you couldn't accuse the women of being emotional and allowing emotions to cloud their judgment. And we see that the disciples, Peter and John, in this passage, they head back with them to make sure that what the women are saying is true. Perhaps they thought they'd see something that the women couldn't. Perhaps they didn't trust them. I don't know, but what I do know is that these guys showed up, they took one look and they left. For John, it says that this was enough and that he believed. Peter doesn't say. But it does say for both of them that they still didn't understand what the Scriptures said. They didn't understand that Jesus rising from the dead was the fulfillment of the Scriptures. They probably should have taken a second look at the words of the prophets. But Mary came back with them, and after they left, Mary stayed. She took a second visit to the tomb, an empty tomb that for her represented hopelessness, loss, and pain. And as she stayed in that place, she cried. A few weeks ago, as part of our Emotionally Healthy Discipleship series, Joel from Patton Church in Swindon came and spoke to us. He encouraged us to bring the whole lot, to bring our whole selves to Jesus. 
And Jesus can handle our emotions. Jesus can handle our weeping, our grieving, our mourning, our frustration, our anger, our questions. He's not disgusted by it. He's not afraid of it. He wants the whole of us, not just a small part. He wants the whole of us. And he can take anything that we have to throw at him. And Mary was willing to weep. She was willing to acknowledge her pain, her distress. She was willing to return to the place where it hurt. But what she didn't expect was that God would meet her there. As she takes a second look into the tomb, through her tears, at first it's a pair of angels who ask the question, why are you weeping? Next, it's Jesus himself. He asks the same question and adds, who are you looking for? And like I suspect with many of us, Mary's mind here remains fixed on the problem. She's fixated on what's right in front of her, the empty tomb. She's looked twice inside it. It's empty. She's seen two angels And now Jesus stands in front of her, and she can't see him for who he is. He's trying to help her out. He's gone beyond asking, why are you crying? He's asked, who are you looking for? Mary's response is like ours so often is when we're faced with a problem. She's only fixed on one outcome, only on one solution. The body has been taken, she must find it, she must return it to the tomb. How often do we, when we have a problem in front of us, just want to fix it? It's taken me a long time, and I still get it wrong a lot of the time, to learn to ask the question when someone comes with a problem, to say, are you okay? Do you need any help? Quite often like to jump in with solutions. Quite like to jump in to give a three-step plan on how to, how to solve the problem. I probably would have done the same with Mary here. Here's your three-step plan on what you need to do to organize a search party, to question people, to find the body. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus has other ideas and interrupts Mary's preoccupation with a single word, her name. We don't know how he said it, and we don't know exactly what it was that triggered her recognition. But something I love is that the text gives us a glimpse into the intimacy of this moment. As I was reading, you might have noticed that it said um, that in Aramaic, Mary responds to Jesus. Um, And the New Testament is actually written in a language um, which is basically called Common Greek versus uh, Classic Greek, uh, Classical Greek, which is um, what like Homer, um, Greek philosophy would have written, been written in. The Bible was written in common Greek, everyday Greek, kind of like our, our everyday talk rather than the, the Queen's English. 
But Jesus and his followers would have spoken a dialect of Hebrew called Aramaic. And for both words, that's what's used here. In the rest of the passage, Mary is referred to in the Greek, which is Maria. But here, it's in Aramaic, Marianne. And she responds in kind, in Aramaic. In this moment, the departure from the Greek lets us know that Jesus is calling Mary by her name in a way that acknowledges who she is, in a way that demonstrates Jesus' love for her and the intimacy of their relationship. And it's in this way that Jesus calls to us. In the middle of our despair, in the middle of our hopelessness, and lost, Jesus speaks our name. He calls to each one of us individually in an intimate way. He invites us into personal relationship with him, invites us to be part of his family, invites us to share in his resurrected life. And Mary responds in Aramaic. She responds to intimacy with intimacy. She responds with affection, with the joy of recognition. I want to pick out one thing from the passage that can help us when we find ourselves needing to take a second look, when we feel overwhelmed, when we're at the place of loss and despair, when all we have are our tears. And it's something that I didn't notice the first time that I read the passage. It took me a few read-throughs and the help of some other books to, to see this. And it's that despite the missing body, despite Jesus' death, Mary still calls him Lord. In verse 2, they have taken the Lord. In verse 13, they have taken my Lord away. No matter how dark it may seem, no matter how hopeless it is, we can hold on to the fact that Jesus is Lord. We can cling to the fact that his death and resurrection have brought us back into right relationship with God. We can hold on to his promise that he is making all things new. And it's not easy to do. It's like looking at a dark, cloudy sky with the rain pouring down and knowing that sunny days will come. But we don't do it alone. We do it with others. We do it with each other. I read a quote once that stuck with me that says, we are saved individually for community. Jesus knows each and every one of us by name and calls us to be part of his family together. And it's not easy. It's not easy to be part of a family. If you think of your own family, um, you might have a fantastic, harmonious family where there's love, affection. You might have come from a super dysfunctional family where 
there's screaming, there's separation. And this new family in God, the church, isn't perfect. In the New Testament, a lot of the letters are written to address issues within the church. But we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to figure out how to love each other better, how to love the world better. We do that together and we do it with God. And Mary was probably overwhelmed as she recognized Jesus. And she probably did what I suspect we would all do if we saw someone we thought was dead or someone that we were missing for a long time. And that was to hug him. Now, I haven't seen my parents in over two years. They moved to Australia in March 2019, um, and we managed to visit them in January 2020, and then COVID hit. And I know that when they come over this summer, the first thing my mum is going to want to do is hug me, and probably she won't want to let go. And Mary wanted to cling on to Jesus. She didn't want to lose him again. She'd lost him once. She lost him twice, but she didn't want to lose him again. And we can be the same. We might want to cling on to, to moments when we feel incredible intimacy with Jesus. We want to live in the sunshine and never see rain or clouds again. But I was reminded... Um, whilst putting together this talk, that Toby said last year that we're not called to live in, uh, in those moments. They're great, and we should cherish them. We should remember them. We should be fueled by them. But the work is to be done in the valley, and the mountaintop equips us for that work. And we should love the mountaintop, we should rejoice in the mountaintop. But here, Jesus tells Mary not to hold on, but to go. Mary is called to go and be a witness to the resurrection. And ultimately, that's what our lives are to be. Witnesses to the good news of Jesus' resurrection. It's to be carriers of that hope that in the darkness there is light because God is light. That in despair that God is hope. That we know that he is making all things new. So when things seem dark, when things seem hopeless, Remember to take a second look. Maybe that's in the moment. Maybe that's a few weeks down the line. Maybe that's years down the line. But remember to take a second look and to find Jesus there. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that no matter what happens, you are always with us. even when we can't feel you, even when we can't see you. 
I pray that you would help us to learn to take a second look and to train ourselves to see you at work in the world around us, in hopeless situations, in good situations, and that we would know that you call each of us by name, that you love us, that you know us, that you care for us. And that we would respond with the same intimacy, knowing that you call us your children. And that you love us infinitely and unconditionally. Help us to know this by the presence of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.